STORY FOUR OF IN EXILE AND OTHER STORIES BY MARY HALLECK FOOTE. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. STORY FOUR A CLOUD ON THE MOUNTAIN PART TWO All this in the intervals of business, for Mr. Tully, in his circuitous way, was agreeing to build a boat for the engineers after the model of his own. He would have to go down to the camp at Moore's Bridge to build it, he said, for suitable lumber could not be procured so far up the river, except at great expense. It would take him better than a month, anyhow, and he didn't know what his women folks would say to having him so long away. He would see about it. The four men sauntered up the path from the shore, Tommy bringing up the rear with the little black-and-tan terrier. In default of a word from his master, Tommy tried to make friends with the dog, but the latter, wide awake and suspicious after dozing under the wagon all the afternoon, would none of him. Possibly he divined that Tommy's attentions were not wholly disinterested. The family assembled for the evening in the shed-room. The women were silent, for the talk was confined to masculine topics, such as the quality of the placer claims up the river, the timber, the hunting, the progress and prospects of the new railroad. Tommy, keeping himself forcibly awake, was seeing two Kirkwoods where there was but one. The terrier had taken shelter between Kirkwood's knees after trying conclusions with the mother of the kittens, a cat of large experience and a reserved disposition, with only one ear, but in full possession of her faculties. Betimes the young men arose and said good night. Mr. Tully was loath to have the evening, with its rare opportunity for conversation, brought to a close but he was too modest a host to press his company upon his guests. He went with them to their bed, on the clean straw in the barn, and, if good wishes could soften pillows, the travellers would have slept sumptuously. They did not know, in fact, how they slept, but woke, strong and joyous, over the beauty of the morning on the hills and the prospect of continuing their journey. They parted from the family at the ranch with a light-hearted promise to stop again on their way down the river. When they would return, they were gaily uncertain. It might be ten days, it might be two weeks. It was a promise that nestled with delusive sweetness in Ruth Mary's thoughts as she went silently about her work. She was helpful in all ways, and very gentle with the children, but she lingered more hours dreaming by the river and often at twilight she climbed the hill back of the cabin and sat there alone, her cheek in the hollow of her hand, until the great plains of distance were lost, and all the hills drew together in one dark profile against the sky. Mrs. Tully had been intending to spare Ruth Mary for a journey to town on some errands of a feminine nature which could not be entrusted to Mr. Tully's larger but less discriminating judgment. Ruth Mary had never before been known to trifle with an opportunity of this kind. Her rides to town had been the one excitement of her life. Looked forward to with eagerness and discussed with tireless interest for many days afterwards. But now she hung back with an unaccountable apathy, and made excuses for postponing the ride from day to day, 
until the business became too pressing to be longer neglected. She set off one morning at daybreak, following the horseback trail around the steep and sliding bluffs high above the river, or across beds of broken lava rock, arrested avalanches from the slowly crumbling cliffs which crowned the bluff, or picking her way at a soft-footed pace through the thickets of the river bottoms. In such a low and sheltered spot, scarcely four feet above the river, she found the engineer's camp, a group of white tents shining among the willows. She keenly noted its location and surroundings. The broken timbers of the old bridge projected from the bank a short distance above the camp. A piece of weather-stained canvas stretched over them formed a kind of awning shading the rocks below, where the Chinese cook of the camp sat impassively fishing. The camp had a deserted appearance, for the men were all at work, tunneling the hill half a mile lower down. Her errands kept her so late that she was obliged to stay overnight at the house of a friend of her father's who owned a fruit ranch near the town. They were prosperous, talkative people who loudly pitied the isolation of the family in the upper valley. Ruth Mary reached home about noon the next day, tired and several shades more deeply sunburned, to find that she had passed the engineers, without knowing it, on their way down the river by the wagon road on the other side. They had stopped overnight at the ranch and made an early start that morning. Ruth Mary was obliged to listen to enthusiastic reminiscences from each member of the family of the visit she had missed. This was the last social event of the year. The willow copses turned yellow and leaf-bare, the scarlet hips of the rose-bushes looked as if tiny finger-tips had left their prints upon them. The wreaths of wild clematis faded ashen-gray and were scattered by the winds. The wood-doves cooing no longer sounded at twilight in the leafless thickets. They had gone down the river, and the wild duck with them. But the voice of the river, rising with the autumn rains, was loud on the bar. The sky was hung with clouds that hid the hilltops or trailed their ragged pennants below the summits. The mist lay cold on the river. It rose with the sun, dissolving in soft haze that dulled the sunshine, and at night, descending, shrouded the dark hoarse waters without stilling its lament. Then the first snow fell, and ghostly companies of deer came out upon the hills, or filed silently down the draws of the canyons at morning and evening. The cattle had come down from the mountain pastures, and at night congregated about the buildings with deep breathings and sighings. The river murmured in its fretted channel. Now and then the yelp of a hungry coyote sounded from the hills. The young men had said, among their light and pleasant sayings, that they would like to come up again to the hills when the snow fell and get a shot at the deer. But they did not come, though often Ruth Mary stood on the bank and looked across the swollen ford and listened for the echo of wheels among the hills. About the first of November Mr. Tully went down to the camp at Moore's Bridge to build the engineer's boat. The women were now alone at the ranch but Joe Enselman's return was daily expected. Mr. Tully, always cheerful, had been confident that he would be home by the 5th. 
The 5th of November and the 10th passed, but Enselman had not returned. On the 12th, in the midst of a heavy fall of snow, his pack animals were driven in by another man, a stranger to the women at the ranch, who said that Enselman had changed his mind suddenly about coming home that fall and decided to go to Montana and prove up on his ranch there. Mr. Tully's work was finished before the second week of December. On his return to the ranch he brought with him a great brown paper bundle, which the children opened by the cabin fire on the joyous evening of his arrival. There were back numbers of the illustrated magazines and papers, stray copies of which now and then had drifted into the hands of the voracious young readers in the cabin. There were a few novels, selected by Kirkwood from the camp library, with special reference to Ruth Mary. For Tommy there was a duplicate of the wonderful pocket-knife that he had envied Kirkwood. Angie was remembered with a little music-box, which played Willie, We Have Missed You, with a plaintive iteration that brought the sensitive tears to Ruth Mary's eyes, and for Ruth Mary herself, there was a lace pin of hammered gold. He said it must be your wedding present from him, as you'd be married likely before he saw you again, Mr. Tully said, with innocent pride in the gift with which his daughter had been honored. Who said that? Ruth Mary asked. Why, Mr. Kirkwood said it. He's the boss one of the whole lot, to my thinkin'. He's got that way with him some folks has. We had some real good talks, evenings, down on the rocks under the old bridge. I told him about you and Enselman. Father, I wish you hadn't done that. The protest in Ruth Mary's voice was stronger than her words. She had become slightly pale when Kirkwood's name was mentioned, but now, as she held out the box with the trinket in it, a deep blush covered her face. I cannot take it, father, not with that message. He can wait till I am married before he sends me his wedding present. To her father's amazement, she burst into tears and went out into the shed-room, leaving Kirkwood's ill-timed gift in his hands. What in all conscience sakes got into her, he demanded of his wife, to take offense at a little thing like that? She didn't used to be so tetchy. Mrs. Tully nodded her head at him sagely and glanced at the children a hint that she understood Ruth Mary's state of mind, but could not explain before them. At bedtime, the father and mother being alone together, Mrs. Tully revealed the cause of her daughter's sensitiveness, according to her theory of it. She's put out because Joe Enselman chose to wait till spring before Marion, and went off to Montany instead of coming home as he said he would. Show, show, said Mr. Tully, that don't seem like Ruth Mary. She ain't in any such hurry as all that comes to. I've had it on my mind lately that she took it a little too easy. You'll see, said the mother. She ain't in any hurry, but she likes him to be. She feels, if he thought more of money-making than he does of her. She's like all girls. She won't use her reason and see it's all for her in the end he's doing it. Why didn't you tell her twas my plan, his going to Montany this fall? He wouldn't listen to it nohow then. He'd rather lose his ranch than wait any longer for Sis, so he said. 
but I guess he's seen the sense of what I told him. Ruth Mary ain't a-goin' to run away, I says, even if you don't prove up on her this fall. You ought to a-told her, mother. Twas my proposition. I told her that, and more, too. I told her it showed he'd make a good provider. She looked at me solemn as a graven image all the time I was talkin', and not a word out of her. But that's Ruth Mary. I never said the child was sullen, but she is just like your sister Ruth. The more she feels, the less she talks. Well, said Mr. Tully, that's all right, if that's it. That'll all straighten out with time. It was natural, perhaps, she should fire up at the talk about Marion if she felt the bridegroom was hanging back. Why, Joe, he'd eat the dirt she treads on if he couldn't make her like him no other way. He's most too foolish about her, to my thinkin'. That's what took me so by surprise when word come back he'd gone to Montana after all. I didn't expect anything so sensible of him. "'Twas a regular man's piece of work anyhow," said Mrs. Tully, disconsolately. "'And you'll be sorry for it, I'm afraid. I never knew any good come of putting off a marriage where everything was suitable, just for a few hundred acres of wild land, more or less." "'No use your worrying,' said Mr. Tully. "'Young folks always has their little troubles before they settle down. Besides, what sort of a marriage would it be if you or I could make it or break it? But he bore himself with a deprecating tenderness towards his daughter, in whose affairs he had meddled, perhaps disastrously, as his better half feared. The winters of Idaho are not long, even in the higher valleys. Close upon the cold footsteps of the retreating snows trooped the first wild flowers. The sun seemed to laugh in the cloudless sky. The children were let loose on the hills. Their voices echoed the river's chime. Its waters, rising with the melting snows, no longer babbled childishly on their way. They shouted and brawled and tumbled over the bar, rolling huge pine trunks along as if they were sticks of kindling wood. One cool May evening, Ruth Mary, climbing the path from the beach, saw there was a strange horse and two pack-animals in the corral. She did not stop to look at them, but quickly guessing who their owner must be, she went on to the house, her knees weak and trembling, her heart beating heavily. Her father met her at the door and detained her outside. She was prepared for his announcement. She knew that Joe Enselman had returned, and that the time was come for her to prove her new resolve, born of the winter's silent struggle. "'I thought I'd better have a few words with you, Ruthie, before you see him, to prepare your mind. Set down here.' Mr. Tully took his daughter's hands in his own, and held them while he talked. "'You thought it was queer Joe stayed away so long, didn't you?' Ruth Mary opened her lips to speak, but no words came. "'Well, I did,' said the father. "'Though it was my plan first off. I might have knowed it was something more in business that kept him. Joe had an accident. It happened to him just about the time he meant to uh, started for home last fall. It broke him all up, made him feel like he didn't want to see any of us just then. He was going along a trail through the woods one dark night. He never knew what stunned him. Must have been a twig or something struck him in the eye. 
He was giddy and crazy like for a spell. His horse took him home. Well, he ain't got but one eye left, Joe ain't. There, sis, I knew you'd feel bad. But he's well. It's hurt his looks some, but what's looks? We ain't any of us got any to brag on. Joe had some hopes at first he'd get to seein' again out of the eye that was hurt, and so he sent home his animals and put out for Salt Lake to show it to a doctor there. But it went any use. The eye's gone, and it does seem as if for the time being some of Joe's grit had gone with it. He went up to Montany and tended to his business, but it was all like a dumb show and no heart in it. It's cut him pretty deep, through his being alone so long, perhaps, and thinking about how you'd feel. And then he's pestered in his mind about Marion. He feels he's got no claim to you now. Says it ain't fair to ask a young girl that's likely to have plenty good chances to tie up to what's left of him. I wanted you should know about this before you go inside. It might hurt him some to see a change in your face when you look at him first. As to his giving you your word back, that you'll settle between yourselves. But however you fix it, I guess you'll make it as easy as you can for Joe. I don't know as ever I see a big strappin' fella so put down. Mr. Tully had waited, between his short and troubled sentences, for some response from Ruth Mary. But she was still silent. Her hands felt cold in his. As he released them, she leaned suddenly forward and hid her face against his shoulder. She shivered, and her breast heaved, but she was not weeping. "'There, there,' said Mr. Tully, stroking her head clumsily with his large hand. "'I've made a botch of it. I'd ought to a let your mother told you.' She pressed closer to him, and wrapped her arms around him without speaking. "'I expect I'd better go in now,' he said gently, putting her away from him. "'Will you come along o' me, or do you want to get a little quieter first? "'You go in,' Ruth Mary whispered. "'I'll come soon.' It was not long before she followed her father into the house. No one was surprised to see her white and tremulous. She seemed to know where Enselman sat without raising her eyes. Neither did he venture to look at her, as she came to him and, stooping forward, laid her little cold hands on his. "'I'm glad you've come back,' she said. Then, sinking down suddenly on the floor at his feet, she threw her apron over her head and sobbed aloud. The father and mother wept, too. Joe sat still, with a great and bitter longing in his smitten countenance, but did not dare to comfort her. "'Pick her up, Joe,' said Mr. Tully. Take hold of her, man, and show her you've got a whole heart if you ain't got but one eye. It was understood, as Ruth Mary meant that it should be, without more words, that Enselman's misfortune would make no difference in their old relation. The difference it had made in the new resolve born of the winter's struggle she told to no one, for to no one had she confided her resolve. Joe stayed two weeks at the ranch and was comforted into a semblance of his former hardy cheerfulness. But Ruth Mary knew that he was not happy. One evening he asked her to go with him down the high shore path. 
he told her that he was going to town the next day on business that might keep him absent about a fortnight, and entreated her to think well of her promise to him, for that on his return he should expect its fulfillment. For God's sake, he begged her, to let no pity for his misfortune blind her to the true nature of her feeling for him. He held her close to his heart and kissed her many times. Did she love him so, and so? he asked. Ruth Mary, trembling, said she did not know. How could she help knowing? he demanded passionately. Had her thoughts been with him all winter, as his had been with her? Had she looked up the river towards the hills where he was staying so long and wished for him, as he had gazed southward into the valleys many and many a day, longing for the sweet blue eyes of his little girl so far away? Alas, Ruth Mary! She gazed almost wildly into his stricken face, distorted by the anguish of his great love and his great dread. She wished that she were dead. There seemed no other way out of her trouble. The next morning, before she was dressed, Enzelman rode away, and her father went with him. She was alone now in the midst of the hills she loved, alone as she would never be again. She foresaw that she would not have the strength to lay that last blow upon her faithful old friend, the crushing blow that perfect truth demanded. Her tenderness was greater than her truth. The river was now swollen to its greatest volume. Its voice, that had been the babble of a child and the tumult of a boy, was now deep and heavy like the chest-notes of a strong man. Instead of the sparkling ripple on the bar, there was a continuous roar of yellow turbid water that could be heard a mile away. There had been no fording for six weeks, nor would there be again until late summer. The useless boat lay in the shallow wash that filled the deep cut among the willows. The white sand beach was gone. Heavy waves swirled past the banks and sent their eddies up into the channels of the hills to meet the streams of melted snow. Thunder clouds chased each other about the mountains or met in sudden downfalls of rain. One sultry noon, when the sun had come out hot on the hills after a wet morning, Ruth Mary, at work in the shed-room, heard a sound that drove the color from her cheek. She ran out and looked up the river, listening to a distant but ever-increasing roar which could be heard above the incessant laboring of the waters over the bar. Above the summit of Sheep Mountain, as it seemed, a huge turban-shaped cloud had rolled itself up, and from its central folds was discharging gray sheets of water that veered and slanted with the wind, but were always distinct in their density against the rain-charged atmosphere. How far away the floods were descending she did not know, but that they were coming in a huge wall of water, overtaking and swallowing up the river's current, she was as sure as that she had been bred in the mountains. Bareheaded, bare-armed as she was, without a backward look, she ran down the hill to the place where the boat was moored. Tommy was there, sitting in the boat, and making the shallow water splash as he rocked from side to side. "'Get out, Tommy, and let me have her, quick!' Ruth Mary called to him. 
Tommy looked at her stolidly and kept on rocking. "'What do you want with her?' he asked. "'Come out, for mercy's sake. Don't you hear it? There's a cloudburst on the mountain.' Tommy listened. He did hear it, but he did not stir. "'It'll be a bully thing to see when it comes. What you doin'? You act like you was crazy,' he exclaimed, as Ruth Mary waded through the water and got into the boat. "'Tommy, you will kill me if you stop to talk. Don't you know the camp at Moore's Bridge? Go home and tell Mother I've gone to give him warning.' Tommy was instantly sobered. "'I'm going with you,' he said. "'You can't handle her alone in that current.' Ruth Mary, wild with the delay, every second of which might be the price of precious lives, seized Tommy in her arms, hugged him close, and kissed him, and by main strength rolled him out into the water. He grasped the gunwale with both hands. "'You're going to be drowned!' he shrieked, as if already she were far away. She pushed off his hands and shot out into the current. "'Don't cry, Tommy! I'll get there somehow!' she called back to him. She could see nothing for the first few minutes of her journey but his little wet dismal figure toiling, sobbing, up the hill. It hurt her to have had to be rough with him, but all the while she sat upright with her eyes on the current, plying her paddle right and left as rocks and driftwood and eddies were passed. She heard it coming, that distant roar from the hills, and prayed with beating heart that the wild current might carry her faster, faster, past the draggled willow copses, past the beds of black lava rock and the bluffs with their patches of green moss livid in the sunshine, hurling along past glimpses of the well-known trail she had followed dreamily on those peaceful rides she might never take again. The thought did not trouble her, only the fear that she might be overtaken before she reached the camp. For the waters were coming, or was it the wind that brought that dread sound so near? She dared not look round, lest she should see, through the gates of the canyon, the black lifted head of the great wave, devouring the river behind her. How it would come swooping down between those high narrow walls of rock, her heart stood still to think of. If the hills would but open and let it loose over the empty pastures, if the river would only hurry, hurry, hurry! She whispered the word to herself with frantic repetition, and the oncoming roar behind her answered her whisper of fear with its awful intoning. She trembled with joy as the canyon walls lowered and fell apart, and she saw the blessed plains, the low green flats and the willows, and the white tents of the camp, safe in the sunshine. Now, if she be given but one moment's grace to swing into the bank. The roar behind her made her faint as she listened. For the first time she turned and looked back, and the cry of her despair went up and was lost, as boat and message and messenger were lost, gone utterly, gorged at one leap by the senseless flood. At half-past five o'clock that afternoon, the men of the camp filed out of the tunnel, along the new roadbed, with the low sunlight in their faces. It was Saturday night, and the whole force was in good humor. As they tramped gaily along, tools and instruments glinting in the sun, 
word went down the line that something unusual had been going on by the river. There seemed to have been a wild uprising of its waters since they saw it last. Then a shout from those ahead proclaimed the disaster at the bridge. The Chinese cook, crouched among the rocks high up under the bluff where he had fled for safety when he heard the waters coming, rushed down to them with wild wavings and gabblings to tell them of a catastrophe that was best described by its results. A few provisions were left them, stored in a magazine under a rock on the hillside. They cooked their supper with the splinters of the ruined blacksmith's hut. After dinner, in the clear pink evening light, they wandered about on the slippery rocks, seeking whatever fragments of their camp equipage the flood might have left them. Everything had been swept away, and tons of mud and gravel covered the little green meadow where their tents had stood. Kirkwood, straying on ahead of his comrades, came to the rocks below the bridge timbers from which the awning had been torn away. The wet rocks glistened in the light, but there was a whiter gleam which caught his eye. He stooped and crawled under the timbers anchored in the bank until he came to the spot of whiteness. Was this that fair young girl from the hills, dragged here by the waters in their cruel orgy, and then hidden by them, as if in shame of their work? Kirkwood recognized the simple features, the meek eyes, wide open in the searching light. The mud that filled her garments had spared the pure young face. Kirkwood gazed into it reverently, but the passionate sacrifice, the useless warning, were sealed from him. She could not tell him why she was there. The three young men watched in turn that night by the little motionless heap covered with Kirkwood's coat. Kirkwood was very sad about Ruth Mary, yet he slept when his watch was over. In the morning they nailed together some boards into the shape of a long box. There was not a boat left on the river. Fording was impossible. They could only take her home by the trail. So once more Ruth Mary traveled that winding path, high in the sunlight or low in the shade of the shore. A log of driftwood left by the great wave slung on one side of a mule's pack-saddle balanced the rude coffin on the other. No one meeting the three engineers and their pack-mule filing down the trail would have known that they were a funeral procession, but they were heavy-hearted as they rode along, and Kirkwood would fain it had not been his part to ride ahead and prepare the family at the ranch for their child's coming. The mother, with Tommy and Angie hiding their faces against her, stood on the hill and watched for it, and broke into cries as the mule with its burden came in sight. Kirkwood walked with them down the hill to meet it. His comrades dismounted, and the three young men, with heads uncovered, carried the coffin over the hill and set it down in the shed-room. Then Tommy, in a burst of childish grief, made them know that this piteous sacrifice had been for them. The tunnel made its way through the hill, the sinuous roadbed wound up the valley, new camps were built along its course, 
but when the young men sat together of an evening and looked at the hills in the strange pink light a spell of quietness rested upon them which no one tried to explain the railroad has been built these two years every summer brings tourists up into the bear river valley they look with delight upon the mountain stream bounding down between hills with the brightness of the morning on its breast there should be an idol or a legend belonging to it a pretty dark-haired girl with a boston accent said to kirkwood one moonlight evening late in summer when the river was low as they drifted softly down between its dim shores poor little bear river did nothing human ever happen near you to give you a right to a prettier name the river did not answer as it rippled over the bar nor did kirkwood speak for it but the wood dove's melancholy tremulo came from the misty willows by the shore and in some suddenly illumined place in his memory he saw ruth mary sitting on the high bank in the peaceful afternoon the sunshine resting on her smooth fair hair the shadow lending its softness to her shy down-bent face the pity of it when he thinks of it sometimes seems to him more than he can bear yet if ruth mary had still been there at the ranch on the hills she would have been to him only that nice little girl of tully's who married the one-eyed packer end of story four part two